welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm your host, Barbara Fisher. Today I'm talking with two gentlemen from Denmark. Uh, we have Simon and Thomas. Hello, hello guys. Hey. Hey, hello. Good to be here. Good to, good to be here. here it's good here to well. have you here. Good. All right. Thomas, you two are involved in a uh, particular project together. You want to talk a little bit about that to introduce yourselves? Yeah, indeed. Uh, a lot of the activity you will see Simon posting and me sometimes online uh, will be about uh, this project we call Hidden Mark. It's a kind of a wordplay on hidden and Denmark. Uh, and the, the concept is that we try to highlight hidden, unknown places. Uh, mostly we focus on like locations that has some kind of a story, uh, folk legend, uh, ghost sighting, UFO sighting connected to it. Uh, but we also like generally uh, go into to subjects like um, legends themselves or UFOs in general or close encounter cases. Uh, Hidden Mark was, was Simon's uh, actually name uh, suggestion after a long brainstorm. And we've since we started me and Simon and then we, yeah, we expanded now to like six people, uh, four like really active and we're actually having a meeting on Sunday uh, to follow up on a lot of things because the thing is that we've branched out a lot in what we want to do and uh, that's just the natural product of being interested in a lot of stuff I think but the main focus is and should kind of be um, getting people interested in places that are maybe even just around the corner that uh, has stories that you would never have imagined would have been there and it, it kind of we want to make, activate people's imagination more around these places and, and uh, maybe even make them take up uh, the task of, of finding legends themselves. That would be the ideal, uh, you know, thing, the ideal outcome of the project. That sounds exciting. Yeah, it's, it's it really, but it's really big and it's uh, like never ending. So that's also like, a, yeah, we end up doing the, pro, the, the kind of subjects, the kind of stories that we are drawn to uh but but you know it's it's a little bit we need to fill out all the corners of it for it to be like a, a functional service as such and we have like a web page with a interactive map well interactive we have it with with like point locations where you can go in and and if, according to different categories you can go in and read more about it and um yeah that that's kind of the the starting point for the project is, is the map and the website so yeah, and we have a tour also, like a self-guided audio tour in Copenhagen that is pretty popular. That me and Simon made. Oh wow, that's really cool. It's uh, a lot of people take it, and we get a good, good feedback on it. And it's it is a good tour, and it's um, but I think it's also that there's nobody else doing that kind of thing really. So yeah, I think there was this kind of a weird. Yeah. Yeah, there was some, there's something called like the weird walk. Weird walk is that yeah, this is also like this kind of like guided tour like to various places in Copenhagen where like people have uh, encountered ghosts and things like that. But uh, uh, again, that's uh, more like narrowly focus focused than uh, what what we offer. Uh, what we offer so far, we are like a level more ambitious uh, uh, multimedia project than that. Well, it's also that the other thing is like a guided tour with with real real guides. This is like you can mm -hmm. pick up your phone and you can uh, you can go do it yourself. And uh, as far as I know, nobody else has done that in in not even ghost tour uh, context. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that sounds interesting. That's that's a 
that's an interesting idea for people who don't necessarily want to walk around in a group of people. Yeah. And, like, you know, people like us be talked <laughs> with by strangers. Oh, my God. You know, some people just don't like strangers. So, yeah, I think do, that's pretty cool. Do it at your own pace. And yeah. 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 So, Simon, would you talk about your why are you interested in these bizarre subjects? that we're all interested in. Again, that's again, uh, again, it starts with, a, I've, uh, I've actually like had an UFO experience of my own one that in more likelihood had like had a fairly down to earth uh, or, or at least prosaic explanation. But again, I think this is why I've like, um, even like contact contacted uh, Scandinavian UFO information or SUFOI. And uh, uh, it's through the official Facebook group that I even met Thomas uh, my UFO experience, it took place on the 17th of September 2006 from 8.20 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. And uh, I was 18 years old at the time. I w- took a walk outside near the east bank of a Svorslev Lake, which is around uh, 5 kilom- kilometers west of uh, Roskilde, a uh, mid-sized city on mid-Zealand. And I noticed a slowly moving object with two white lights on the side and a blinking red light in the middle. This object, it appeared near the horizon to the east and moved towards me. It and didn't give any sound at first. Then after... Five to six minutes, uh, the object uh, flew at a low altitude, and by now it made the same sound as a typical jet aircraft and had uh, three white lights in a triangular formation with a blinking red light in the middle. I instantly thought it looked almost exactly like those uh, black triangle-type UFOs that I had heard of in uh, TV documentaries about uh, UFO sightings and the like. And the main difference is that like every time the red light blinked, the two white light uh, blinked as well. That's not something that is like uh, that I think is like usual for uh, black triangle UFO uh, experiences and UFO, black triangle types uh, UFOs. But anyway, I thought it was almost certainly just a regular aircraft. But um, just to be certain, I sent my report to va- uh, via email to... Um, Scandinavian UFO information, or SUFOI for short, uh, which is the, the oldest UFO research organization here in Denmark. And anyway, the two UFO, uh, UFO investigators for SUFOI who examined the case, Toke Haunstrup and Hans Bødka, they were certain that it looked like a typical aircraft sighting. And the thing is that most aircraft, they have a white light in the tail as well. But when an aircraft is banking, this light gets obscured by either the fuselage or the wings of the aircraft. This happens very frequently at this particular time of the evening because this is peak hour for uh, Kastrup Lufthavn in Copenhagen, which is the single biggest and busiest airport on Sealand. And that's when at this point, like between... 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. when a lot of aircraft, they're circling the area while waiting for permission to land. The red light, that would then be an anti-collision light that uh, sits either on top or on bottom of an aircraft, uh, depending on the model. Some models they have like a, uh, of aircraft, they like have uh, one of these uh, anti-collision lights on top and one on the bottom. And... Uh, and not so long after that, uh, at like the local library, I borrowed like a non-fiction book about UFO history called uh, 50 Years of UFOs by John and Ann Spencer, 
published in 1997. And in one chapter, it also points out that uh, these uh, black triangle type UFOs, they became widespread and widely seen at the exact same time frame in the late 70s and uh, early 80s when the U.S. Air Force, they were testing the prototypes for the F-117 Nighthawk and the B-2 uh, Spirit stealth bomber aircraft. And again, um, the B-2 is like a, one of like the most stereotypically UFO-like aircraft to ever enter mass production. So I think like a lot, a lot of um, black triangle-type UFOs, they have to be misidentified aircraft, either perfectly normal uh, civilian aircraft like mine and the weirder ones, they're probably uh, uh, various high-tech uh, military aircraft uh, that might or might not be secret at, uh, at the moment. Yeah, I've always considered the the stealth bomber and the stealth fighter to be behind a lot of the Black Triangle aircraft it, that were seen in the desert areas of the United States at that time period. I always assumed it was them. It, it isn't like the United States government doesn't use genuine UFO experiences to cover their activity with normal things like, oh, we have to test this aircraft, but we want it to be secret. So it's really convenient that it looks like a black triangle, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting that you didn't hear it until a little bit later into the, the sighting. Um, how did the sighting make you feel the first, the, at first when you were looking at it? What was going through your mind? Um, at first, uh, at first, I thought I'm not. Really, I think that's probably an aircraft. But again, I'm not 100% certain exactly what uh, again what that is because again, I I, I like had a lot for a long time. Like had an interest in uh, science fiction and horror literature, and that obviously meant that that I've also like watched the occasional. Um, uh, a docu a non non-fiction documentary about uh, UFOs and things like that because uh, that's again in the overall uh, same cultural space also, and that also and that also uh, means like um me it also means like um mm, that uh, I like had some fascination with the uh, with the area, but I also found it like a lot disturbing that I like I found a lot of like these uh, descriptions of like real life UFO encounters and especially UFO abductions uh, like extra uh, like in like intensely disturbing because again what if again the, the kind of things that you'd think you'd, like usually happen like uh, science fiction horror films uh, only um that only uh, uh, that 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 things like that happen all all the time in the in the real world. But the actually th the funny thing about uh, this, and that's something that I found out in uh, uh, Patrick Hoeger's book uh, Swamp Gas Times, uh, because I mentioned the stuff about uh, rush hour at airport uh, and, uh, and, uh, the, and the and the stuff that happens with like uh, these banking aircraft that. Uh, uh, with the tail obscuring their, uh, with the with the wings obscuring their tail lights and these uh, red 
blinking anti-collision lights being responsible for this classic uh, black triangle shape. Patrick Hoige, he actually managed if like all those uh, close encounters of the third kind and uh, UFO abduction accounts from the real uh, world, they all were true, then you would like have uh, alien spaceships like constantly or uh, uh, constantly uh, waiting for permission uh, to uh, to land uh, everywhere just like uh, any commercial <laughs> aircraft. And I found that, and again, that I think... That quote is uh, in a Swamp Gas Times. This that is like one of the wittiest and uh, most poignant uh, quotes I found in like a in a UFO related book in like a long, long time. It should also be mentioned that again, one thing I like share in common with Thomas that that uh, again isn't so widespread in Danish UFO culture uh, is basically the, the fixation of like all the weirdest and the more mystical uh, uh, corners of UFO uh, uh, of the UFO experience and all like the parallels with like uh, both uh, like religious visionary experiences and all the mythology about gods, demons and elves and fairies and things like that and I think there's like two specific uh, reasons for that um the first is that uh, not only that I found is the fact that I used to like uh, found the alien abduction des- des- uh, description and especially like the appearance of like the classic gray aliens and particularly those like uh, streepers uh, visitors uh, like those long triangular faces like extremely disturbing until I like also at the public library in Roskilde borrowed this uh, electronic encyclopedia about UFO culture, a multimedia presentation called uh, Sightings Ufopedia. Uh, and the thing about is that one, uh, some of the analysis part where they discussed all that uh, kind of like uh, pointed out uh, like all the similarities uh, between uh, modern day UFO contact stories and uh, older folklore stories uh, older, older folklore again about elves and fairies and things like that and it's also notable that again I mentioned uh, with Lee Strieber's uh, communion and his uh, uh, visitors is that and one thing I keep pointing out is that modern fantasy artists like say for Games Workshop's uh, Warhammer uh, Warhammer franchise uh, they like draw uh, uh, usually draw elves with like the similar kind of uh, facial features as um as uh, streepers visitors, like with long triangular faces, like a uh, very high cheekbones, small pointed nose, and uh, sharp chin. And again, I don't think this is a coincidence because again, they're like uh, two different uh, cultural eras, manifestations of like the same archetype. And the other reason for this, if I'm so like so fixated on um, all the. On all the like parallels between the modern day UFO contact and like uh, earlier stories of like elves and fairies and gods and demons and that is like when I was uh, I think this uh, I think this was uh, uh, also around then in like the mid to late two thousands when I was on vacation in, with my uh, family in the UK with my parents in the UK I bought this uh, uh, book by Alan Picknett uh, called the Mammoth Book of UFOs and. Uh, in that, in the analysis parts of that, then Lynn Pignett, she goes really, really hard on pointing out like uh, all the similarities between uh, elves and fairies and things like that and uh, UFOs and aliens on the other hand. And again, I think it was actually through this book that I first 
even encountered the specific theories of John Keel and the uh, Jacques Vallée, and again, and hey, this this ties into the this ties into the entire uh, t- the entire title of this uh, of this uh, podcast, which is Six Degrees of uh, John Keel. And again, when I like joined the the official you uh, this, uh, the official Facebook group for Scandinavian UFO information, uh, then I noticed that uh, Thomas uh, was like the one other, one of the the other pe- people in that group who were like uh, most uh, interested in that entire angle and those like more and more exotic and mystical perspectives on the. Um, on the UFO phenomenon and all that, and again, that's not uh, that's not an angle which that many people in like the uh, Danish uh, UFO subculture uh, really take. Um, uh, really take. You have like a uh, there's like uh, there's like I think there's like three or four major groups. Uh, I might have ne- neglected some more which you which uh, you Thomas might have focused more on. There's first Sufoy, who I mentioned. They. Um, They've been they're like the oldest, and they were to begin with very closely uh, attached to and very affiliated with um, affiliated with uh, the theories and ideas of uh, the Polish American UFO contactee George Adamski. But then, then the the uh, the more skeptical people they had a major falling out with the Adamski fans in the late sixties, and at some point there was a major schism with the Adamski true believers that forming their own their own uh, splinter faction, uh, which is called ICAP Denmark, the ICAP that being the International Get Acquainted Program. And uh, later on, we also have Exopolitik Denmark, Exopolitics Denmark, who are like uh, closer to the entire UFO disclosure movement with people like Richard Dolan and the and the people and uh, people like that, uh, but again, I think, uh, but I'm not as familiar with uh, 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 them as I am with ICAP and Sufoy. What about you, Thomas? Can you like uh, this is where I'd like to actually prefer for you to like to take over about um, Exopolitik Denmark and some of the other, and if there are like other major UFO groups here in Denmark. No, no. I mean, uh, let's. Yeah. I wanted to mention uh, some of this later in the show because uh, it gets relevant, um, like connected to, uh, let's say, the um, the way the UFO phenomenon has, has uh, the, the nature it has taken in Denmark, because uh, there are quite some differences here from the US and from other countries. And it has a lot to do with the UFO organizations here and how they were and how much they, let's say, allowed uh, to be, um, you know, researched. Uh, I don't say that as a, as a conspiracy thing, but uh, for example, Sufoy, um, they were a group that very early on took a very skeptical position because of some, some you know, uh, experiences they had where they simply were forced to kind of look at this more critically. And I, I'm also a member of Sufoy, as Simon has mentioned, the Scandinavian UFO information. And uh, today it's a pretty skeptical organization. I'm probably the only one who's uh, in it that works with these topics uh, in the, like say, in the more exotic sense. Um, but there are more UFO organizations that that, that are working here um, that more go into these subjects, but it's more in the exopolitics uh, and disclosure kind of angle, um, relating a lot to, uh, to many of the things now with um, Grosh and, and all these things uh, going on with, uh, with the hearings and yeah, I don't know. Uh, this is not so much the area. I don't focus so much on newer ufology in this. Um, so, but but that's mostly what Sufoy does today. Focus on information about what's what can be seen in the sky, 
what are the options and and not so much more anymore about um yeah close encounter cases and stuff like this but um i think it's relevant to talk about it maybe a bit later uh yeah it's interesting this about the uk that simon mentions because this is where i uh my interest in in ufos also really started um in 2006 uh, i was um I was part of a, a, a forum online for a music forum uh, and was talking with different people around Europe uh, and had one particular good friend, uh, online friend who lived in Liverpool. And we talked a lot uh, about uh, visiting there and different things. And then the subject at some point went towards UFOs. And he, he said that even his dad, who was Royal Air Force technician, he had gotten convinced that there was something going on because they had a, a favorite camping spot so liverpool is like um not very far away from wales mm-hmm. and uh, some some of the most favorite camping spots in the uk uh, is um is the anglesey island uh, the home of the druids uh, as it's known more or less uh, and uh, he said, are you interested in coming here and uh, we'll take a, a trip there and see if we can see something? Because he had seen things splitting in the sky and different things together with his family. Okay, so I, I was, I won't say skeptical, I was pretty open and interested in, in what was going to happen. Um, and already the first night uh, we saw a lot of strange things out in the sky, uh, out in the horizon over the water, um, different lights of different kind which you can find a lot of descriptions of in in the ufo literature but the real thing for me that kind of like okay this this was something over the edge was at a certain point i see a kind of a slowly flashing light uh imagine we are at the the camping place is kind of like a, a hill going downwards toward the coast and um f- far to the left there is like a small town following the coast i don't know a few kilometers down t- to the left i see down in that area uh kind of a, um, I would say like a, a camera blitz but in slow motion so it's like mm. uh, i was thinking is it a lighthouse first but no no it's over the water it's changing locations i don't know it was happening at the same time as a lot of these uh, lights were more in the horizon mm-hmm. at some point i went down with a with a flashlight i don't know why i got that uh, notion to do it but i went down with a flashlight and i I don't know Morse code, but I, I kind of made like a, some flashing uh, motions. And yeah, you know, the, the thing was just still around the area where, the, where I've been seeing it the last hour or so. Okay, so I go back up the, the hill up to the, the tent. And when I'm up there, I suddenly see that light uh, like straight to the left down at the, the water's edge. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay, if this was a boat with somebody or it couldn't have gotten there so fast. Except if it was a motorboat, and then I would be able to hear it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't even uh, have, the, have the time to uh, to think that much more about it, because then it was suddenly right in front of me down at the water, and it like blinked out. And then the next I saw was like it blinked into existence like 10, 15 meters in front of me, like a beach ball-sized blitzy kind of light that just like opened and it, it closed again. And that was like... I don't remember exactly how I felt, but that was, it shook me a lot. And my friend didn't see it. He, he had gotten inside for, for other reasons uh, and tried to sleep. But this was, was kind of like, okay, after that, I, I started to look into 
not extraterrestrial angle um, theories, but but more like okay, this this that I saw was something that could be more like an Earth-like phenomenon as well. So I think I got into that kind of uh, direction very early on in my interest. Um, yeah. So the color of it, um, I would say it's like magnesium burning when you see this. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was the white. The white, super yeah, bright. Super bright. The thing you hear in a lot of other descriptions. I would. The thing about it is that it didn't hurt the eyes. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it if I had been close, it could possibly have done some damage. But it was too bright to not be. It. I shouldn't have been able to look at it that much, and it was a very kind of defined light, uh, mm -hmm. in a strange way. So yeah. Right. So it didn't. Had you ever seen a light that acted like that? No. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. It, yeah. When you said it's a contained light. I've seen those, and those don't act the way physics tells us lights should act. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a shape to it. It was kind of like blinking into and out of existence, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I mean, I've read a lot about these earth lights and all this stuff since, and, and you see this kind of description of the very blitzy kind of uh, earth light lights. It's very similar to mine. And I've even read descriptions of people who also went with a flashlight and tried to signal so yeah yeah well that's really interesting that you both were were attracted by sightings in 2006 um even though Siemens sighting might have been and probably was a, a earthly aircraft it doesn't really matter i have found that even if your sighting turns out to be something completely mundane, it still piques your curiosity. Yeah. And it still draws you into looking at reality differently. It, Definitely. It, yeah. And that's what I saw with both of your stories. Even though yours was definitely a little more likely to be unusual there's still no guarantee that his wasn't unusual so you you are on either side of a spectrum and you still both went in the same direction and there, that's yeah, like, yeah it felt like yeah, we that, somehow were meant to meet that's, 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 that, again that's uh, that's like extremely interesting and now it actually like uh, me who's like uh, more than Thomas like uh, most like interested in like those kind of really weird and like exotic types uh, of uh, theory about the UFO phenomenon but again I think uh, the only reason that I no longer find the topic disturbing on any sense is because I've been able like to view it through that uh, and that through that entire angle, and it's actually interesting about Thomas's uh, experience that he mentioned because. Um the British cryptozoologist Richard Freeman, he had a very similar experience uh, as uh, Thomas had, which he told, which he told about on one episode of uh, the Center for Fortean Zoologist ah, uh, web TV show on the track. Uh, where he had like a very similar experience as Thomas in this kind of, I think in this Neolithic stone circle, uh, but Richard Freeman, he interpreted it as an encounter with like uh, fairies or elves rather than anything to having to do with uh, UFOs. Mm-hmm. And there's that angle again. Yeah. The I context. Have to, 
I have to hear that Context one. Context uh, is everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it's, I, I don't know that I'm not interested anymore in in, uh, in different ways of looking at it. I just feel like you you reach a point where you exhaust all the the different theories and you never get uh, an answer from any of them. So in the end, it's kind of like um, how much how much is it? Uh, I don't have very strange experiences very often. This was the most weird experience I maybe had. Uh, so so I'm not a person that's very close to this. So I, I look at it a little bit detached. Uh, so, so I think that maybe Simone has a more spiritual, uh, like angle to this. So, so it's I think it's natural that I have a more detached interest, but I definitely am interested, and in, and I will keep on going back to the subject. Uh, and the thing about for me is again that um, uh, that I'm like a person like who, especially over the course of this year, has like switched from like having this kind of like like very rational and uh, scientifically uh, minded uh, way of looking at the world and of of thinking, and then within the course of especially. Uh, it's a process that like has started uh, that like started like five years ago, but um, it's really like accelerated this year that I'm like I'm going towards like having like a much more like mystical and I wouldn't say religious uh, angle, but again I, I don't no longer I know I'm kind of like been learning like to give up this uh, compulsion like to having to fit everything into this kind of rational systematic uh, worldview and it's and that's something that has like started really taking off around here and like. The most important uh, lesson that I might have, I have probably learned this year is how often that uh, the world and the universe actually uh, feels less disturbing and um, less uncomfortable uh, once you are used to not, uh, not no longer like getting stuck in one specific uh, systematic worldview and, uh, and belief system and sort of like that. And again, that's again like very much like the kind of uh, life philosophy that uh, John Keel and Charles Ford had on uh, had on the world now that i think of it mm. but i also think that you can uh, you can get more active into it if you really i mean i know you can the more i've been close to some of these cases and research stuff and i feel drawn into some of the weirdness also so i definitely know it's there but i just don't uh, it it's not something that is so important to me to experience so often. It comes a little bit in waves. Uh, so I definitely don't have it the same kind of um, like world. It's not like a worldview thing for me. It's 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 curiosities and it's interesting, but but maybe I mean, it's it's not something that depends on my daily life uh, so much anymore, at least. Uh, but I I'm still following and interested in, in specifically like pre Kenneth Arnold type cases from Denmark and, and stuff like this uh, a lot. So, yeah. Pre Kenneth Arnold. So do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because uh, sure. I, I'm sure my listeners know that Kenneth Arnold was the person who saw them, uh, saw a number of aircraft from the sky. He was a pilot in 1947. Mm. And that's where the flying saucer name came from. He didn't say they looked like saucers. He said they looked like saucers skipping over water. That was how they moved. But the media grabbed onto that image and made it literal as opposed to metaphorical. Yeah. So, because his looked more like sort of 
very round, half insect, half boomerang kind of yeah. shape. Almost like, like a a very bat round... batarangs. <laughs> yes, yeah. Batman. That's exactly it. Exactly. And what I find interesting, I uh, there is what I find what, what I find interesting when I like see those sketches that Kenneth Arnold made himself and the illustrations that it made, they look they look have like almost the exact same silhouette as the Horton Ho H O. Uh, the Horton H O two hundred and twenty nine uh, aircraft, uh, jet aircraft prototype, like the very first flying wings ever produced. Hey, there's the connection to black triangles again, uh, like uh, an uh, uh, jet fighter <laughs> airplane that uh, a prototype that the German Air Force built during uh, World War Two. Mm. Yeah, it does look like that. Yeah, I mean, there are so many connections you can make to the, the Kenneth Arnold uh, sighting and what did he really say and what, what he saw had so many sightings after. And I mean, but the, the yeah, the, the main thing is that it was the, the, the point where one, the flying saucer term was, it wasn't even when it was coined, actually. People have, have discovered that later that it did exist earlier in another context. But in the context of, of flying um, aircraft or, or flying unidentified flying objects, as it was no later it, it it was the turning point for me i i just started at some point uh, i was uh, became a member 10 years ago or something of the magonia exchange um for a mailing list uh which is started by chris Obeck and uh you know many people in the in the ufo community who research the old cases uh share share cases there and we have one case we also want to talk about that that simon will present later that that is Maybe the most unique uh, from here uh, that you can still call a UFO case, uh, many hundreds of years old. So I've been looking into the the, the track record, so to speak, of, of UFOs in Denmark uh, up until 1947. And there's many interesting things, but again, it's... Uh, yeah, it differs a lot from, from, for example, what has been put in, in American and even British newspapers uh, during the years. Uh, and that has a lot to with the difference in, in approach to journalism and, and um, a lot of things. But that's kind of my main focus area these days is, is finding these old cases and, and, yeah, you know, try to make some kind of a, a catalog also around them. How many have you found? Uh, I mean, quite a, a lot from the newspapers, but they are <laughs> many degrees under uh, the, the strangers that you would find from the same period in, in, in the U.S. newspapers. Uh, mm -hmm. We have air, airship cases. We have uh, uh, strange balloon cases, weird lights. But it's it's not in the same exact level. But for sure, we got the, the airship bug also came here. And, and there are waves that, that, that discovered from 1908, 1909. Uh, yeah, a little bit earlier, there are some too. So, yeah. That's really interesting because that's that's not something that Americans have probably heard that that there were other if they heard about other airship sightings in that general time period or gently after that time period, it's not necessarily going to be Denmark. No, all all we get to hear is, and there was a wave of. Uh, other airship sightings in Europe. That's it's like a sentence in a book, and that's it. That's all we get. Yeah. It's so this is fascinating to me that you've actually found them, looked at them, counted them, 
you, and I see, I appreciate that greatly. It's, it's, I mean, at some point, I have to kind of make it into to a catalog and, and share it, uh, English speaking uh, catalog, and share it. But but it's it's like it's a long process, and another a lot of other projects get in the way all the time of, of kind of focusing only on that. Uh, but I mean, the, our our crown case is is this uh, case called the Oslo case. Uh, Simon, do you wanna do you wanna lay out the that case because that sure. Is- The Oslo Inge, it's like took place in an, uh, near a village in the mid-Jutland, uh, which is uh, in the overall area of Randers, a mid-sized provincial town in the area. And it's a good candidate for the title of Denmark's very first UFO case, as it took place on the 30th of, 30th of April 1600. A group of villagers clearing the nearby stream Alling O, uh, they saw a um, mysterious big wagon rising from the fields in the distance. They also saw a group of strange beings moving in and out of the so-called wagon. These beings, they were described as human-like, but bigger, both taller and uh, wider, and with much longer necks than humans would ever have. These beings, they were apparently engaging in a type of um, battle exercise with where they were fencing with like these instruments or weapons that looked like a uh, cross between uh, swords and uh, spears. And occasionally they would actually lift each other up with uh, these uh, instruments uh, that were described by the witnesses and it's kind of like web- weapons. Most of these beings seen near the mysterious wagon They wore black, but uh, too often they wore red. And uh, one of them wore this uh, complicated, like, long white outfit with this black ribbon or band across uh, their chest. Sometimes uh, they could see this type of smoke that surrounded only the red figures uh, in that field. And at some point there was, like, another mysterious character uh, who came up and attacked like the, uh, the 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 group and this character was also like wearing white and specifically wearing this big hat and then scared away uh, one of those uh, entities near the wagons uh, the one in a uh, white clothing with a black ribbon again that uh, being in like a white was apparently like the leader of them or functioned or so uh, again after the being in the white Uh, got scared away then the other beings and the wagon they then fled towards the nearest forest and after which the witnesses they lost track of the beings and the wagon and the experience it overall lasted around uh, half an hour and again the thing about this thing about this incident is that it would have been completely forgotten if it weren't for a local nobleman named uh, Holger Rosenkrantz He had written a document. Um, he had, uh, he, if he had not written a document about about it, which would have been like uh, preserved and copied, uh, then this this incident would have been completely forgotten. Because apparently, at a fire in uh, Rosenkrantz's manor, uh, the original text of the of uh, that document was destroyed. But fortunately, uh, at, in the middle of the 18th century, a copy was uh, had been made of that. Um, 
handmade of that report. And anyway, in 1909, a local historian named Søren Hansen, he wrote about this incident in uh, Rana's Historical Society's uh, yearbook. And that's how that uh, incident got uh, repopularized. But the thing about it is it is that it wasn't until like a relatively recently in like a way, way past the UFO culture had like taken root here in Denmark that many people even started connecting Oslo Inge which, uh, with these um, uh, close encounters of the third kind. Uh, uh, Thomas, can you say something about when uh, when the Oslo Inge incident that was specifically popularized in like the context of UFOs because again, this, this uh, was a fairly obscure... I mean... Yeah, no, it it was, and and like you say, it it wasn't until people started to to see the the, the direct connections, and when people became more open to uh, to like entity cases and this, uh, and and I don't know exactly when it surfaced, but I think it was around eighty. It it was used in some book, nineteen eighty. But the the interesting thing about it is also that Rosenkrantz, the nobleman, he interviewed uh, many of these people uh, who who had the sighting. Uh, and he and one of the people who had the sighting was the town's, I mean the head of the town basically more or less. Um, so it's it's really credible sighting, and the way it's it's um, was investigated is almost like a UFO case uh, would have been mm-hmm. investigated. Uh, so that that's really interesting. And if you look at the date, Simon mentioned the thirtieth of April. I mean, many people will will note that date because that's just the night of Walpurgisnacht. Um, so it's it's at this point, especially in in Denmark, it was um, a time that was connected with uh, witches. I mean, we, we were uh, it was the time of, of you know when the witches were said to, to fly to uh, Brocken, and um, so there was a supernatural link to the date, uh, which may or may not be significant. Um, it should also be mentioned here that. Yeah, it should also be mentioned that uh, the local priest in Oslo, Hans Pedersen Brun, he had uh, around the same time uh, of the Oslo Inge incident with the uh, weird beings and their wagon, he had heard this mysterious thundering noise uh, while walking around in the woods at that area and this weird wailing voice going, yes. ve, ve, ve. And Brun, he also met a group yes. of boys in the woods who had experienced the thundering noise, but not the weird wailing voice. And uh, Brun, the priest, he wasn't sure if this happened on uh, uh, on the same time as the meeting with the, with the mysterious wagon and it's uh, not qu- uh, op- not uh, human inhabitants. But uh, uh, Rosenkrantz, he was certain that uh, uh, th- these two events, they happened on the, on the same day and they were somehow connected. And the thing about Rosenkrantz... Uh, can you still hear me? But yeah. Yes. Yes, we can. Uh, Rosenkrantz, he himself thought that this this event was a warning from God to non-believers. Notice again, this took place shortly after the Protestant Reformation, uh, which here took place in the middle of the 16th century, and also at a time of plagues and wars and witch hunts all over Europe. So Hansen, that 20th century folklorist who repopularized the case, he thought that it was a 
hallucination that triggered by a misidentified water spout that people then uh, try to fit into their existing uh, belief systems. And again, this is like another classic element of the UFO pheno- uh, phenomenon uh, is both the fact that um, the UFO phenomenon basically has this kind of like religious uh, Uh, character and its effect on witnesses and you also uh, have the uh, skeptical explanations that frankly strike me as being uh, at least as unlikely if not uh, more unlikely than the fantastic <laughs> explanations for them than the fantastic one <laughs> yeah. no yeah. it's yeah Yeah, that's 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 one of the classic things about UFOs is when the skeptical people say Oh well, you saw a water spout. Like you've never seen those before. You got all this coastline and stuff, and and there's water spouts. But you saw it and had a hallucination. Yeah, <laughs> reach for some kind of things that fits uh, together in the most yeah, imaginable way possible. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's very yeah that all these elements. This is the, so interesting about this case that that it's so much fits the same pattern of if it would have happened something similar today roll out the skeptics roll out this uh, it's kind of like roll out the religion roll out the religion out, yeah. yes yes and this is in 1600 like Simon says we had the lutheran protestant Ref- uh, reformation but this was in in just that the millennium had just turned and this is always a time where where people are looking to Uh, what, what what's going to happen now? Are we doing okay as people, or are we going to be punished? Or mm-hmm. and and also it fits into a legend about the the wild hunt and this thing we had in Denmark, a legend about something knakvonen, and it again relates to Thor and his uh, you know his chariot riding across the skies. And here we have the thunder, we have the weather phenomenon. It's it's really interesting how all these elements uh, come together. And actually, this thing about the weather phenomenon. And the clouds, it goes again in in all the cases that me and Simon talked about bringing here today. Well, not all, but many of them. You will you will see it uh, appear again. So yeah. And the thing about the Oslo, this, this is see this is. Go uh, ahead. Uh, but and the thing about the Oslo Inge case is that it wasn't very well known uh, outside Denmark until Thomas he wrote an article uh, about it in uh, 2014 for his blog uh, Vormanomalous. And the reason why Thomas, he actually got the idea for writing a blog post about it was that Chris Orbeck and Jacques Vallée's book about pre-Kenneth Arnold UFO sightings titled Wonders in the Sky didn't even mention it. But the thing about it is when Vallée, he wrote like an expanded yeah. edition of the book, he did encounter Thomas's uh, original translation uh, of the uh, of the uh, of the text about the incident and again I think that's like the highest mark that a UFO enthusiast can be proud of is that uh, uh, you brought uh, an obscure yes. mainland European uh, UFO incident to Jacques Vallée's attention because again that was uh, to my knowledge how Vallée himself he already uh, he even got uh, famous in the first place because he would like uh, write about a lot of like uh, UFO cases from uh, France and uh, mainland in uh, mainland Europe in general that had been uh, mm. that uh, British and American UFO magazine scenes wouldn't have noticed otherwise french uh, uh, and yeah. italian no i was surprised that he didn't uh, know it uh, yeah i was surprised that uh, i think that was where i started uh, where i became member of the magonia exchange it was because i like someone said i bought the book when it came uh, 
Wonders in the Sky, and I said, well, okay, that's strange. It's the most famous here, but... And that, again, shows you that not many people here are, you know, uh, involved in, in the subject on a, in an international way. Um, yeah, so it's in the deluxe version of Wonders in the Sky now, and but that was kind of what kickstarted also my interest in, in this... Um, yeah, these very early cases. Uh, but I would have to say it's the most uh, spectacular we, we have from, from the time of that kind. So, yeah. Yeah, my, what I was going to say was, to me, all of the folkloric motifs that are found, you have, it's on Walpurgis nights, mm. Walpurgis knocks, as, as they say in Germany. It, it's also in England and America among neo-pagans known as Beltane. Yeah. Um, it's the changing of winter into, you know, perfect springtime working in towards summer. It's the demarcation between the cold time and the warm time. And then you have the weather patterns, and then you have the traditions about Thor and the wild hunt. Uh, and then, you know, as you said, this is during the Protestant Reformation, and, and that just, for people who don't study European history, that is a time of lots and lots and lots of odd things happening because society was being shaken up. Yeah, because yeah. until the Protestant Revo uh, Reformation, the, the Catholic Church pretty much was in control of pretty much everything. They either uh, shared their power with the kings and the nobles or they pretended to share their power with the kings and the nobles. And so once you have times of great social churn or social change, there is a correlation between strange experiences and sightings. Um, in the, in the uh, Project Hera that I'm working with, where we're taking all of Albert Rosales's huge number of humanoid, unusual humanoid cases and putting it into a database. Oh, yeah. And then you can, you can look at it by date. You can look at it by time, you know, all of this stuff. You can look at it by place. What we've found is you can identify the cases that, you know, when you have clusters, almost always there is something happening. Um, there's a huge cluster during the time of the, the falling of the Berlin Wall. There's a big cluster. And these aren't necessarily UFO cases. These are cases of strange humanoids. Mm. So, yeah, sometimes there's a UFO involved or a weird light. Yeah. But a lot of them, there's just some weird guy, you know, <laughs> doing weird things, <laughs> you know, standing by the side of the road looking strange. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it still fits that pattern. Yeah. It's now I remember actually you and uh, and this project. I don't know when I saw it, but I I corresponded a lot with Albert, uh, especially in the early times uh, on Magonia and so I I many of the files from Denmark is is from me uh, in his uh, files. That I figured so. it was once <laughs> we started talking. I'm like, I bet. Yeah, yeah now I remember you talking in some video about this project and and yeah. 
So. Yeah. And another thing about Barbara that you mentioned the, the context of the Protestant Reformation is that the entire point of the Protestant Reformation was specifically like uh, removing all these uh, elements of uh, fo- pagan uh, folk religion and all these uh, folk beliefs and practices that had uh, originated mm-hmm. outside Christianity. And the thing about it is that sh- uh, so shortly after... Uh, the Protestant Reformation here in Denmark, you see all the uh, these events and all this kind of uh, imagery and uh, these kind of character that, as both you and Thomas pointed out, uh, clearly have some kind of uh, precedence in like a prior folk religion and in folklore that's older than Christianity. Then again, reappearing itself, but again in a new set of symbolism yeah. and a new and a new and uh, again a new Repacked. set of man- manifestations so mm-hmm. uh, just because like uh, uh, that in, uh, just because um, again a, a previous uh, belief system that um, that uh, like has some kind of place for all of this then gets uh, gets rejected by society at large that doesn't mean that this phenomenon goes away but then again it re-emerges in a different set of symbolism uh, again that's like completely new new again and again this ties into uh, what i mentioned before about this about like uh, how much of the the tropes and like even like the visual signifiers in uh, modern day uh, UFO contact stories that like can be traced back to uh, much older folklore about uh, gods and demons and elves and fairies and things like that. And again, uh, and again, uh, yeah, and again, that that I don't think any of this is coincidence at all. And again, this is also... I don't... Yeah, I mean... Hmm? And again, uh, and also, and also, like this is also why I've like put so much work into like popularizing all of these uh, weird and more obscure Danish UFO co- uh, cases, and I've even like been like uh, doing like paintings to illustrate them for like the Hidden Mark website because I figure that with some more effort, they they, they, they could these could like become these kind of like a uh, classic cases uh, again, like many of those uh, UFO cases uh, from uh, outside the US and UK that you mentioned, Albert Rosales, and also. Jacques Vallée, they have uh, done so much to promote. Yeah, no, I'm, I they definitely deserve to be uh, more well known. Uh, so, but the thing uh, also about the belief system taking over from the other, and literally, if you see here, we have churches that were built on former holy sites, pagan sites, and then after the Reformation, we had churches that were built on top of those churches, or not built <laughs> yeah. on top, but it was kind of like you know. The foundation is there, and then so in a way, physically, you can see it in the landscape many places that it was, you know, um, yeah, it was borrowing a little bit from the other and then, but putting something on top to say, aha, we we control this now. So Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Protestant Reformation was, in addition to taking all of the pagan juice that was left in Catholicism, because I, I, I really think that in a lot of cases, the Catholic Church was kind of like, okay, yeah, 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 you can have that. You, you please have that, but just talk about Jesus, would you? Yeah, yeah, on the same, <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, you know, yeah. Just, just, yeah. Pr- just do what the priests say to do, and then we will look the other way. Yeah. Or you, you like the goddesses? Okay, that's okay. good. That's good. Uh, have Mary. Yes. There you go, Mary. There you go. And then the Protestants were like, no, 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 yeah. no. Everything has to go. Want- it, it, we don't want that. 
and it sort of took the enchantment yeah. out of Definitely. Christianity. Definitely. I I mean my family were a, a whole pack of German Lutherans and uh they were they were very not mystical mm. people. But at the same time, members of that same side of my family had psychic experiences, saw weird lights in mm. the sky. You know, the the phenomena was still there. It was still talked about in the family. Yeah. But it, it church-wise, it it was all, you know, kind of I I I I'd hate to say sad and boring, but that's kind of what no, happened. No, I, I agree. Yeah. I, totally today when I go to like a um Orthodox church or Catholic churches, I, I'm really like, yes, this is amazing because the only, the only thing we see in churches here is a few relics from Catholic time and then some very, it's very demystified and I'm not religious at all, but I, I just appreciate so much the, yeah, you know, the, the mythology in, in the religion and the, the mm -hmm. imagery and, um, and that's a big part, I think, of why we don't have uh, that much of an imaginative experience culture here if you can say that uh, right. i really believe that in, in a way likewise conversely uh, it might it might be notable that uh, south american ufo cases they tend like to be like 10 times weirder on average than those from like the uk or the u.s mm -hmm. and the same mm -hmm. thing uh, and again very the, true yeah and, and again again i mentioned also like uh, those uh, french ufo cases from that uh, uh jacques valet promoted and uh the thing about Valé is, uh, again, so many of those cases he writes about, um, he writes about, uh, they take place in like rural settings and uh, they have UFO uh, occupants that look and act much like, um, and they act very much like um, like gnomes or goblins from, from fairy tales. And there's like the Cusack case uh, where... Uh, uh, where like where the the aliens they were like almost described as like kind of like looking almost like demons. But the interesting thing is that uh, we, uh, here in Denmark uh, we have like have very few close encounters of the third kind uh, cases at all. But in many of those that are described, uh, the uh, UFO occupants they're like described as being. Um, very similar to humans, but like much, but like much shorter, and we're usually like wearing like green outfits, and again, and and again, that makes you like think of like oh. gnomes and goblins and the like. So I I don't think you can like uh, reduce Elves this. Elves and fair. Yep. I don't think you like can reduce this like to um. Uh, this is also some, a similarity like like uh, cuts across religious uh, difference to some extent. So. I so again I think they might explain hmm. that, that that might explain some of like the difference between like the UFO cultures of like different European co uh, countries but again those are also like uh, there's also like some things that do go in common uh, 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 despite yeah despite uh, what uh, the uh, what a uh, denomination of Christianity dominates in uh, specific countries no no for sure I mean there are different elements you're completely right. So there's there is very different elements, and also it has to do with um, we had a big mythology about fairies here too, a big big one. Uh, but uh, at some point um, we rationalized it away uh, almost to uh, yeah the point of non-existence. 
But maybe maybe now is a good uh, time to talk about the the Shellands oil case, Simon. Uh, now we're into the. Um, the close encounter cases uh, yeah yeah again um that's like perhaps the most famous close encounter of the third kind here in denmark uh, where, where, where there were like these two um there were like uh, these two uh, like boys who, uh, who were like i think they saw this uh, spaceship uh, no they, no they didn't actually first see a spaceship they saw something that looked like this kind of weird uh, uh, dark cloud moving towards 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 them i think yes uh, at a, like Shillands Oil, which is like this kind of peninsula here on here on Zealand, with like two boys who were like uh, seeing. Uh, uh, first, it was this kind of like weird cloud that moved to uh, towards them, and then later on, they like they they actually it actually like uh, looked like um, started then looking like this kind of like flying saucer type uh, uh, spaceship, but it like almost had this kind of like antenna producing uh, protruding and. Uh, also, there's this kind of window in in, in front. Uh, it actually, uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, again, it like took place. I think in like '69 uh, uh, or so. Uh, definitely in the late in the late '60s. '67. '67. And again, that 67. was all, And again, that was also uh, the year that and. This is uh, something of a synchronicity, and I'm not sure this is direct causal. Causal link between this, but. Uh, the description of that spaceship sounds a lot like uh, the the timeship used by the main characters in like the French science fiction comic book uh, Laureline and Valerian, which also premiered that year. And the, uh, it lay, it would later in the Danish translation as Linda and Valentin get really popular here, but it didn't get translated until uh, to Danish at all until 1974. And again. Uh, so and again, is this, uh, is it possible they were influenced by a French comic book at the time that uh, wouldn't get translated into Danish at all at all for years? I don't know, but I th- find that um, that um, uh, that entire s- similarity uncanny. But here's the thing that was inter- that is like interesting. Uh, again, later uh, afterwards, they would like see this kind of um, gondola lower down from that uh, spaceship. Uh, again, like a, again, similar like to a to a zeppelin or a or a balloon almost. And again, there they like could see the the crew of uh, that uh, of that uh, UFO. And the thing is that they were also again described as uh, similar to uh, they were described as similar in appearance to humans for the most part. Um, uh, but again, they were like much shorter than fully grown humans. Uh, and again. Uh, some of the, they had like different clothing that uh, some of them these they had these kind of outfits that uh, to use another comic book comparison uh, uh, like wore similar clothing to like the Beagle Brothers gang like the old Donald Duck uh, uh, comic books uh, f- uh, from that time and that that was a similarity. Or that the Dalton Brothers. Thomas. No, the oh yes, the Dalton Dalton Brothers from uh, from like Luke instead and from but there was also Luke. yeah. But again, that's also a French comic book, interestingly enough. Uh, and then again, we have. Um, and then again, there's also like this is a similarity to the Oslo Inge case that in in the Shillands Oil case there was like uh, I think one or two among the uh, entities in the Shillands Oil case were like uh, wearing like a different type of outfit and seemed like to function as like the officer or the leader. Well, the other similarity is the the cloud. I mean, the the weather phenomenon in the beginning, uh, same kind of like uh, undefinable 
whirling mass uh, that that was in the Oslo case, and suddenly it becomes something more defined. Uh, so in that case, that that there's again this uh, initial kind of thing that seems like a nat- uh, like a natural phenomenon. But it's it, this case is interesting in many uh, ways. But I actually a few months ago I found the the witness because the one boy he ran in before the the whole thing really developed. But I, I actually managed to find on a trip uh, to this area, find the original witness who nobody has spoken to him uh, in a UFO context since the year I was born, actually, or something, uh, 1980, early 80s. And he, it's quite interesting. I'm not going to go like into all the details with it, but, but he, I think now looking back to it, that actually the researchers... Uh, put a lot of influence on his uh, testimony. Uh, that's what he thinks himself. And um, he, there's a lot of the details that he today, looking at the drawings that were made, me asking him about it, he said like, did I say that back then? I really don't. Uh, and memory is, is, is a, a thing you really have to be careful with because he might have forgotten, might have completely changed since then. But in, nevertheless, he still actually had... Uh, he tried to be super skeptical about it and said, like, I think I was so influenced, but I think there was a connection. I think there was, a, and I said, but do you think or do you not think that it was uh, something, somebody trying to communicate with you or, yeah, he still thinks it is. And he kind of went back and forth in it, but that was the main gist that he kind of felt like he was cheated out of a contact experience uh, in a way that, mm. that uh, it was polluted uh, somehow with um So there is a chance that, that, the reason why this imagery is similar to many others, close encounters of the third kind cases, humanoid cases in, in Europe, is because the, the researchers were unwillingly asking the boy, who was only seven years old at the time, uh, for oh, details. Yeah. That That's a big uh, factor in it, that they were actually that young, seven and nine years old, the two boys. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, really easy to do. Yeah. Even if you don't mean to do it. Exactly. It's very easy to do with children that age. Yeah, you want to give adults uh, answers to their questions, and if they uh, ask long enough for something they want to hear, then maybe you're likely to say, "Okay, maybe that was like that." Or yeah. mm-hmm. so. But still, I mean, he was sure that he saw something unusual from back then, and he all his life it's kind of like stuck with him, um, and he never really let it go. So yeah. That is really, really interesting. Mm. And one of the things I was going to say about it resembled something that was in a French comic book, but the comic book wasn't translated into Danish until years later. Mm. There are cases that I've, I've read in places like the Flying Saucer Review um, where you have a UFO that looks like something that comes later. And I wonder if that isn't a case of these things happen outside of the normal flow of time. Hmm. So it is possible that something that happened before an image or a, a television show or something could have essentially happened at the same time as that comic book image or television show in that outside of time place. In other words, ideas become unbound by time 
in that area where the the UFO is happening. Again, sure. that reminds sure, I mean, me a bit. Of, that again reminds me a bit of um, like yeah. That reminds me a bit of like the British comic book writer Alan Moore. He like uh, he like uh, used like the, uh, and another British uh, comic book uh, author uh, named uh, Grant Morrison. Both of the, those uh, authors they they if you like. Uh, The stories they're like writing as like already existing in some kind of like archetypical dimension outside of uh, time, and they're like uh, like just like uh, giving shape to these stories that they're like already channeling outside, uh, out outside the time and place uh, uh, they live in. But those stories they're writing, they have like always existed in. Uh, Some form or the other, and now that you mentioned mm-hmm. the comic book me, the comic book medium, then I found it interesting that there are like two very extremely influential comic book authors who both like have that kind of a metaphysical idea behind mm-hmm. their uh, behind their creative process. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and people like yeah, Jeffrey Kripal have also written a lot about this kind of structure mythical structure that exists outside of, of uh, like uh, the real world and and how it sometimes anticipates it and sometimes uh, has a similar kind of approach and uh, or happens similar at a similar time and this and it's very interesting uh, there's many 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 examples across not just ufology but but a lot of these weird subjects that that where you see this kind of premonition prediction whatever we want to interpret it as yeah Yeah, Eric Wargo um, writes about that as well, where um, when people have premonitions, it's actually a case of seeing something. Bef- it's hard to explain. Wargo's book, I have to reread it. Like I didn't, I don't know times. it. Please, uh, please uh, send a link after. Uh, okay, I will. Uh, um, it's really good. It has to do with time. Okay. And the way that time, again, we hear this from physicists and quantum mechanics and all of this, that time does not flow in one direction, that everything is happening at the same time, which is now. But we as humans, because of the way our brains function and because of how we are conscious of that, We only live time in a, in a moving in one direction kind of way. Mm. And that's but it the, turns uh, out that the future can, can um, influence the past. Oh, as the past can influence the future. I mean, we understand that part, right? Mm. Yeah, and that's if a, a kid isn't born in the past, they can't become a famous leader in the future. So. We understand that part. We can we can get that, but when it comes backwards, yeah, yeah, that gets more. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and the interesting I'm, thing is that I've read two science fiction novels that uh, like have that, um, that that like have that idea as the central premise. Uh, the first is a uh, cryptozoic by Brian W. Aldis, and the other is a uh, dark matter by an author named Blake Crouch, and they use this as a springboard for like a uh, uh, depicting. Uh, time travel in the uh, cryptozoic's case and uh, uh, travel bet- between uh, alternate uh, universes in dark matter's case that are enabled by use of uh, special psychedelic drugs that like reset and rewire these processes 
by which the brain reconstructs uh, sense data into a coherent worldview. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I will definitely send a link to Orgo's yeah. book because it, it, it explains a couple of the premonitions I've had very, very clearly, but I still can't articulate it completely myself. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm really interested in that also. I mean, this case, uh, we have one case that, that I discovered uh, 10, 12 years ago from Copenhagen, which re- involves a lot of this kind of time discrepancy thing. Uh, you're you're going to be interested in this one when we talk about it for sure. Um, okay. It has a lot of this time elements and yeah. Okay. Um, Simon, uh, should we talk about the... Um, the boy case of the the strange boy. Yeah, yeah, that's from uh, that's that's uh, again that's also from a very very odd uh, Danish UFO sort of UFO related which took place in uh, this uh, provincial town on Sealand called uh, Rengstel, uh, where there were like a, a series of incidents where a lot of people uh, they uh, around the town saw this both this kind of uh, mysterious red light moving around. And at some point, they would also see this kind of like weird feral, feral looking boy with like a unkempt hair and like a crazy look in his eyes who like never said anything, if I'm not mistaken. This boy and people were like very mm. unnerved by this uh, boy in the, and, and at some point, and at some point, uh, this boy, he like uh, uh, went up to this light, this glowing red ball of light, and then... Um, uh, and then, uh, like, suddenly disappeared, or, uh, and th- and uh, almost as if uh, uh, there was this uh, red light. This all this was like some kind of like vehicle or some kind of vessel for transport that this boy was uh, using. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. Uh, he appeared uh, in in most of the sightings. It started as as just a light, and then it kind of spread uh, to the neighboring towns, and and. There were more and more cases uh, sent in uh, letters to newspapers about, I also saw the strange boy, and there came more details to him. Uh, so it's like it was like a, a myth in the making uh, with a UFO angle to it. But if it had happened 100 years before, it would have been a fairy case, I guess. Uh, yeah, a fairy or a witch or a... Yeah, yeah. Y- yeah. Now, what what year did this happen? Uh, 86, 87, um, or was it 87, 88? Uh, at that time, 87 was the most... Uh... Okay. Yeah. And um, what can you describe the red light? Was it a big light, a little light? Did it move? Did it make noise? Well, some of the cases, it uh, said that it came and uh, the boy went near to him and he kind of disappeared in it and the light disappeared. It it seemed like it was uh, a pretty big light, and there were some con- like outlier cases from the the area, um, which where a girl was chased by a, a big ball that had sparks coming out of it, uh, chased on her moped. Um, so there were a lot of cases that I maybe influenced other people who. Uh, it's it's very strange with these details uh, how they came in and um, and kind of built on it. But but there is like a, an addition to this that that uh, I actually discovered this year also. But but I mean Simon, uh, the first thing we were me and Simon were looking at this case a while ago, and uh, we were kind of thinking there was this drawing of this boy, and he looked 
strange. I mean, uh, but he looked like the feral kid from a Mad Max 2 the Road Warrior. I don't know if have any of you seen that movie, that, that yeah. movie, but uh, in that film, like uh, Mel Gibson's Mad Max, he like picks up this sidekick, this uh, feral boy who's like uh, been raised by animals and doesn't sp- and doesn't speak uh, at all, but and has this kind of like a, a, a silver boomerang he uses as a weapon. But again, that bo- that boy in that film, he looks exactly like he looks almost exactly like the that that, that drawing and that film premiered in 1981 yes Mm -hmm. but actually it had shown in tv uh, not um, not very long before the first of the cases i think we found that out didn't we uh but i had never seen that mad max movie uh you were the one who said okay this one looks just like, and we looked at the picture of the that feral kid uh, from screenshots and and in the movie, and it even had like the same kind of jewelry that that boy was said to. So was that an unconscious influence, or was it somebody making games? I don't know. It's 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 a bit weird. But here comes the weird part. Um, so this year, when when um, I was talking with the the guy who was a kid back when uh, he saw the 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 object that that started as a cloud and uh, and and where the, the little man was mm-hmm. inside. I was going from there to an Airbnb two kilometers west of there. Uh, then my host at the Airbnb, we were talking, he was a very talkative guy. So we were sitting and just, ah, well, what are you doing up here? And I, I said, okay, we we're co- uncovering strange areas in Denmark and blah, blah, blah. And then I said that, that I just talking with this guy who had this experience. I said, okay, he'd never heard about that before. I said, ah, okay. And he asked me, is there other kind of cases like this in Denmark that uh, I don't know? Or say, yeah, there's this uh, about a guy or, or a young boy that was seen in, in the uh, the Ringstead area, uh, the middle of this island we live on where Copenhagen is a part. And he and I could see already that he was a bit acting a bit strange. And then he stopped me at some point. And he said, don't tell me how this boy looked. Let me let me try to guess. Did he was he like a wild looking boy? I said, yes. Did he look a bit like, uh, and he referenced some Danish uh, children's book character, which was very similar to the description. And I said, yes. And he was like completely, whoa. Uh, He wasn't prepared for that. He hadn't thought about it for many years. But in a period in the mid 80s, he had lived, I kid you not, under one kilometer, 500, 300 meters from where the first sighting, uh, well, no, not the first, but second or third sighting of the boy came and he had come out to the toilet one night in his house and there he opened the door and there was a a little wild boy a bit like Mowgli he also said uh, from the jungle book uh, peeing or standing at the toilet preventing him from peeing and he was just looking at him and he was just like whoa what is this I have to go to the toilet Uh, go away and he went and got his twin brother and they came back and he could still see the boy, but the brother couldn't see him. Oh. Uh, so we were like, okay, then we started to try to uncover the following days, which year could this have been? And we ended around 86, 87. Um, so that's just really, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just really, really strange. amazing. Yeah, that was ooh, also synchronicity. I, I really like that one twin could see him and the other one could not. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's because I've had many experiences where I'm with people and, you know, most of us can see whatever it is we're seeing 
And then there's one person, usually my husband, who cannot see them, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. Or everyone has the same experience, but they're slightly different. And that was like the case for like... Just not... That was like the case for like the with them um, with the uh, Calvin Parker and Charles Higgins from Pascagoula, the Pascagoula abduction. They like had so decidedly different recollections of the same uh, of the same of this like the same event. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always liked that event as a kid, though, because in my mind, and and it's because I read John Keel early on. Mm. Uh, there is something that allows some people to see these things more easily. Maybe it's the way our brains are wired. Maybe it's a physical thing in the brain. We don't know. Mm. But you can have two people right next to each other and one see part of it and the other see something completely different or another part of it. So that you have these stories that are almost the same, but not quite. And that's, uh, I believe that, that that's kind of the trickster element that tries to be self-negating. It reminds me also you know, of, it, um, it also reminds me uh, again of uh, Jenny Randall's in her book, The Pennine UFO Mystery, about that UFO wave that hit uh, Northern England in the late 70s and the early 80s. There was like these kind of sightings where several people, a group of people, they saw like an absolutely huge uh, UFO over like a vastly popular, over a vastly populated densely populated cities and the and the thing that the, Jenny Randall she points out that this group of friends they could all see the same uh, UFO but again if it happened if this UFO uh, moved over moved over a very densely populated city then the uh, pretty much uh, people from across the entire city should have seen this uh, and there should be like no way of keeping all this a uh, secret Mhm yeah that's, yeah. that's that's a similar thing. One of the things Keel says was that the real part of the UFO is the anomalous light mm. that often starts at the beginning of a sighting. Yeah. And then everything else is somehow yeah, the psychic yeah, yeah. because the light communicates somehow with the human yeah, yeah. consciousness. I tend to yeah, fall into... I, I, if I could say I had a belief about... The phenomenon, I would say that I, I very much am open to that idea. Yeah, I, I really think that's that can explain it because I've had my own experiences, my very first UFO experience. My mom saw a bird and I saw a UFO hmm. and they were in close proximity to each other. But, yeah. you know, when I looked to see where the bird was, she she was pointing at a branch. I didn't see anything there, but behind the branch up in the sky, I saw a silver bowl shaped thing, like an upside down bowl, just, you know, stair stepping its way, floating through the sky. And Damn. she kept going on about that weird red bird. And I kept going, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just stood there and went, uh, um, yeah. uh, uh, what about the other thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit. Uh. Um, actually, when Simon mentioned Alagash, uh, no, he mentioned uh, Pascagoula. I was reminded of the Alagash abduction case. Uh, if you read the description there uh, of the light that they saw first, that is very, very similar to what I saw in Wales. Uh, that and the same kind of reaction to it in many ways. I was just reminded about Interesting. it. Interesting. Uh, if, if there was a segment on unsolved mysteries, 
uh, where which is very very similar in the you know the imagery. So right. Yeah. And this brings us to uh, what uh, Thomas he mentioned about how um, this uh, mysterious boy who was like seen there in uh, Ringsted, uh, 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 and that other witness uh, whom uh, Thomas had mentioned uh, compared the boy to a Danish children's book character also from the 80s. And uh, that Danish uh, children's mm-hmm. book uh, um, character was called Trollipus, which means like which like is uh, means yeah. a little troll. Yeah, a <laughs> nickname for a little troll boy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like it's that. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah. kind of forget forgotten character today actually. But when I when he when he referenced that the the guy who had the experience at the toilet, he uh, he mentioned that and I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember that from my childhood. But anyway, the thing about uh, the, 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 but the, whereas the first thing I noticed uh, when I saw that um, uh, drawing of the little of that little little uh, weird boy there was um, the feral kid from Mad Max to the Road Warrior. But the interesting thing is that this is actually a somewhat well-known case in a in Danish UFO circles. But uh, apparently, nobody else has like uh, made the uh, comparison to uh, the feral kid from uh, Mad Max. Uh, uh, again, even despite again that's like a fairly internationally popular and influential uh, uh, film series. Yeah, I. Yeah, I didn't know. I I like that he looks like a little troll from Danish literature, or or like the little guy in Road Warrior. Yeah, yeah, because I showed him both. Uh, also, the image of the feral kid, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, that's very similar, but he had different hair, and none of the things were complete." He said Mowgli was probably the most uh, the closest, like a, a wild boy. Uh, so, yeah, there there are lots of weird cases about feral children in the 19th century yeah. um, in Europe. There's several. and uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there's the green children the of Woolpit. Yeah, yeah. Wolf yeah. Who may have actually been um, Belgian. That's the, that's the new skeptical uh, ex- explanation. That's why they didn't speak English. Yeah. Um, uh, there was uh, religious persecution of a minority of people in Belgium at the time. Mm. And so there were refugees. That's, but I still want to know why there were green. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I want to know <laughs> why they said they lived in a country that's underground. Yeah. <laughs> that, it has Casper Hauser wipes also. Also the, the Oh yeah. Casper Hauser yeah. was the very first thing I thought of when you were talking about yeah. this little wild boy. I'm like, is it, did, did Casper go to Denmark? I mean, <laughs> and later i mean <laughs> yeah it's interesting I, but but the red light is something that is really that that's interesting so yes. we'll have to talk more about that later um not on the air because i'm uh-huh. doing research on anomalous lights for a book so okay i, I really want to dig into that later definitely the guy uh, the guy with the toilet experience um, that I met this year he uh, he also said that there was a red light around the boy and he mentioned that before I said there was red lights connected uh-huh. with them so again see. yeah that's that's gold let's <laughs> go um, was there one other thing uh, related to that no actually uh, Simon uh, we should mention that one detail from the Sheerland's other case with the, the basket in the in the craft because the, there was one weird detail that, that was it made it into the reporting 
but it's so weird and so uh, not politically correct uh, that it's. Uh, but we still have to mention it. Um, and that imagine Denmark in 1967. There is very little overlap between uh, here and the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, there's TV, but a seven-year-old boy, how much can he catch of these things? But a girl I know who researches mostly ghosts, she she was the one who pointed out this detail. So so the, what he said, the boy uh, back then, was that he saw a poster on the, you know, the gondola basket that was was lowered down with the with mm-hmm. the humanoids in it. There was a poster on it, and uh, on the poster was quote like a Negro with a basket on his head. I was like, okay, what what kind of detail suddenly comes in like that uh, in a UFO case? And then she, the the girl, the ghost hunting girl I know, she said that uh, actually this sounds like the imagery of these early minstrel entertainment things where uh, a lot of black people would have um, this over-characterized show clothes. And often that would be like striped clothes also. And these humanoids had these kind of striped clothes. And she said it was just the first thing that made her think was that that sounded like some imagery with, with like from a minstrel show with, with this hat that could look like a basket or something to a, to a little kid. Oh, that's interesting. Super random. And of yeah. course, when we think of minstrel shows in the United States, we think back to vaudeville, which is way before the 1960s. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that was... Oh, yeah. I mean, this Al Jolson yeah. in the 1920s, but he was white doing blackface. Yeah. a different thing it was making it was making fun of the minstrel shows that were done by um african-american artists ah. on stage in the vaudeville theaters um and and that's really interesting because yeah. i th- by the 1960s most americans probably wouldn't have recognized something like that as anything that they would, you know, go, hey, <laughs> this happened. And it's an interesting detail, too. Yeah, really, really strange. And I can't compare it to any other uh, I've heard. And again, it's like so, so, ra- so me, random that, would be that uh, it's time it's, again. It's so random again that uh, it's like I difficult like, to think of like a satisfying uh, either fantastic or skeptical explanation for, ex- explanation for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's self-negating, like George Hansen says in The Trickster and the Paranormal. Mm, mm, it will book. throw... You know this little little detail in that is quote unquote impossible yeah. <laughs> or incongruous yeah. or just plain doesn't make yeah. sense. Poisons the narrative also, and yeah. yes, and it poisons the narrative again. Like you said, it's not politically correct, mm. yeah. but it is part of history. But it's something that poise, as you said, poisons the narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really yeah. So, so curious the detail, but again, actually, I asked him about it this year, and he he did not remember it. So, yeah, take that for again. Yeah. Then maybe somehow that w- was poisoned by interpretation of the first yeah. investigators. Yeah, but strange to see what they would have gotten out of putting that detail there and there. Uh, so yeah, but he, yeah. they, I mean, yeah, they they chose to include it. Uh, because they thought he 
yeah, he was being. I mean, maybe it, it seems so outlandish that why would he make that up? Uh huh. Something, uh, something like that. Yeah, and again, that's that's basically I, I just like uh, like to talk about like my illustration, like the painting I did of the Oslo Inge incident for uh, that Hidden Mark website, and that's one thing that I'm really proud of because it's like presents quite a bit of a challenge because I wanted to create both something that I could imagine like people in the 16th and 17th century interpreting this event as, but also one that would like look sufficiently alien to a 21st century audiences. And uh, the wagon I specifically modeled on that sketch of an uh, armored fighting vehicle drawn by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, it's all often mentioned as an early example of the basic concept of a tank. But the first thing I thought when I saw that Leonardo da Vinci uh, concept of the, his armored fighting vehicle was that it looked like a classic flying saucer. So I like decided like to paint those uh, creatures as mysterious wagon as a... Uh, looking like a Da Vinci's battle wagon. Because again, it's something that to people back then would have uh, uh, looked like a um, mysterious wagon, but also kind of looked like an uh, alien spaceship again. And the beings, beings I like uh, drew them as like these kind of like snake-like lizard people, lizard people with these uh, long uh, snake-like uh, necks and uh, kind of like these uh, triangular pointy heads, kind of like those of snakes. Because again, that covers that can like cover both like the base of uh, them being like uh, both taller than humans, but also like wider and fatter and having longer necks. And the thing about uh, these snake people or lizard people is that they're like non-human intelligent people whom I both can imagine like people in like the 17th century believing in. And they also like fit into like a UFO culture and uh, and um, and science fiction imagery with, uh, again, we already have like David Icke's lizard people. But the thing about them is that they're like very similar like to like the snake men who appear like in the fantasy and horror stories of uh, Robert E. Howard uh, back in the 30s, you know, the creator mm -hmm. of Conan the Barbarian uh, and one of his other barbarian heroes, King Cull, he often like fought these kind of uh, serpent, uh, serpent men again. And the herons I included because, right. because they're like very large birds for the sake of a uh, size contract to show that uh, these entities, they are like much taller than humans. And uh, I like uh, that. Yeah. And again, and again, and another thing that I like found interesting about uh, uh, Oslo, Oslo, uh, uh, Oslo uh, Inge is again simply the the you know the that Rosenkrantz he um, he interprets this as like a warning uh, to human warning to to non-believing humans from God and uh, uh, that like also re that again also like reminds me of like Whitley Strieber he uh, he has like identified the I think this kind of Martha like this apparition of the, the Virgin Mary as possibly being this kind of uh, UFO experience that some people simply might have have uh, filtered like through their religious uh, experience again but again that's something which again cuts across like a, a Protestant and uh, the Catholic uh, parts of Europe again, which is like one reason why I don't think mm -hmm. uh, this is like as culturally specific again. And the last thing I wanted to talk about is from uh, this is another Danish close encounter of the third kind uh, case from uh, Store Vilmos, which means like the great wild bog in Danish. And uh, 
It's a very obscure one, uh, only known from the February February, February 1960 issue of uh, UFO, uh, this UFO news that is Sue for his quarterly magazine, which is no longer published because they don't not just have a an online newsletter. Anyway, it took place in October of 1957, but again wasn't reported until 1960. It takes place at 11 p.m. A farm owner and his wife, they were driving across the bog and they saw this bright glowing object moving towards them from out in the field and they couldn't tell whether it flew or drove. And when the object moved past them, the couple, they could see it was the vehicle which like two people inside, sitting in the, inside this bluish green dome. Uh, and at no point, and at no point uh, were the crew described as anything else than human. And again, uh, for a long time in the 1940s and even well into the 1950s, at least as many people, they considered the UFOs to be uh, secret man-made uh, military experimental vehicles as extraterrestrial spaceships. And now that I think of it, this also ties into the 19th century mystery airships where there were like... Um, described as the work of like eccentric uh, human inventors straight out of, out of a Jules Verne novel. And the thing, and here's another thing I find really interesting. Between that and the witnesses not being sure whether the vehicle they saw, whether it drove or flew, I instantly thought of a hovercraft. But the thing about in 1957, hovercraft, mm-hmm. they were still being tested, but they didn't enter mass production until the 1960s. And again, back then, there were hovercraft being tested in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and in Finland. And we don't know if uh, any of these hovercraft were being tested here in Denmark. And since the witnesses, they don't remember the exact date of um, of deciding it would probably, other than it took place in October, that would be difficult to know. But again, it's something that like seems improbable but uh, not that unlikely or impossible again and uh, this is the paint uh, the painting i did like from for the hidden mark uh, website and again i can also like send that that uh, to you afterwards i had a lot of fun doing that because uh, i like had to depict the ufo as like this kind of cross between like an early experimental hovercraft from the 1950s and a, a classic hollywood style uh, flying saucer and again uh, I also like had it uh, even uh, uh, had it matched like in color that the, uh, I saw like the, I like depicted the witnesses driving this kind of like green Volkswagen Beetle Beetle uh, again because that was again a popular car in Denmark at the time and I, and I thought that would be like a nice uh, like parallel in that they were like always also driving this kind of like a a. Uh, green uh, green vehicle with this kind of like dome like shape and again that's a pa- that's uh, a painting I'm like uh, really really mm-hmm. proud of. I love hearing about how other artists work. What is the medium that you use? Um, I use um, uh, I use like a, a mixture of uh, pencils and watercolors on a cold pressed uh, paper. Mm-hmm. I like usually do like uh, all the all, uh, all 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 like the big surfaces, uh, the big surfaces, and the most of the stretches in the watercolor, and uh, but then I like um, uh, but then I like uh, do like the finer details in uh, dry pencils. Yeah, I do that too. Um, I've got some 
uh, fairy paintings that are, you know, the background and the first few layers are done in watercolor. And then I go back with uh, Prismacolor pencils and put in detail. And that's really a lot of fun because, you know, paint, I, I do paintings that are small usually. So I don't have, you know, a thousand canvases leaning against a wall somewhere that are huge, um, especially for uh, episode art. So I do things on a smaller scale. And honestly, trying to paint a little tiny fairy face is like, yeah, it's, it's, it's stressful. It's very, very stressful because, of course, you're re-wetting the background. So it could go really wrong. But colored pencil on top perfect mm. Simon your drawings are also fairly small scale I mean uh, uh, yeah, like A4 like, uh, is max or something isn't it uh, I sometimes do so, uh, do them in A3 but uh, I don't do that anywhere as often as I used to I might I might like be doing uh, some A3 paintings in the near future because it's so long ago but again the paintings I'm doing right now that's like a series uh, about how uh, Poinshoi uh, the part of Copenhagen where I live how it looked in the 1930s Mm. Oh, nice! I like that. It's, it's interesting. Actually, Recently, I also found out that William Blake. Uh... <laughs> okay, continue. What was it with William Blake? Yeah. Simon, just continue. Okay. No, it's no, continue. Actually... You continue, and I'll, I'll come in. But again, it's actually partially because um, uh, uh, it's actually partially because of of uh, it's a six degrees of John Keel related and. Um, uh, related um, uh, topic that I've even started becoming so fixated with uh, design and architecture from the 1930s and things like that because uh, uh, Celia Edgar from uh, uh, Just Another Tinfoil Hat who's like been a guest uh, on this past uh, podcast uh, one of the reasons I actually started uh, paying attention to her like over so many other um, Fortean uh, YouTubers is specifically because like she's uh, like almost always like wearing like clothing in the styles of 1920s and 1930s and uh, and again that like makes me remember her like very often because like uh, how often like do you like see like people who are like uh, under uh, like my age or like a bit young or my like a bit younger uh, like uh, like like so painstakingly recreating fashion from like the twenties and thirties, but again, again, but again, that's kind of one reason why I even like developed this fixation on twenties, uh, thirties uh, fashion. Well, in twenties and thirties, uh, architecture and art is awesome, like so awesome. <laughs> um, art Deco is amazing. Yeah. I, I okay, like go all ahead, the, Thomas. I like all the architecture and like the static things from then or what can you say, but I, I really don't like the music and the, the fashion and all this very much. But of course I like the, the Lovecraft period and all this and, and setting. Mm -hmm. No, the thing I was with William Blake, uh, you always see these, uh, these images from him. And, and then only recently I looked in, in some of these art books and I see how small they are in real life. I never saw any of them in any exhibition. So, but they are like um, postcard sites. Some of them, some of the most famous ones. Uh, which really surprised me. Yeah, and see William Blake, you're talking my you're talking my language there because okay. <laughs> he is one of my favorite artists and he's been very influential in a lot of what I do. And okay. he did them small because yeah. he would turn them into engravings to go in the books that he printed of his poetry 
and stories and parables. They were illustrations for that. But you're right. He did things in very small, detailed um, drawings and paintings that were just amazing. I I love his work. So Yeah, yeah, it's very iconic. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've. I've snuck and used a few of his images in some of my collages. They're in the background, but they, you know, I mix them in with tarot images and all kinds of stuff. And every now and then somebody goes, Hey, is that from William Blake? (laughs) Yes. You caught it. Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's cool. That's really cool. Uh, I have to look at some of your artwork more. I remember. I can send you a link uh, to my, uh, I'd probably, my Instagram page is, We'll have a lot of yeah. art on it, so it's easier to see Yes, stuff. yes. Let's connect there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Are we Are yeah. we good, y'all? Yeah. I mean, there was this case from Copenhagen that really wanted to to have, well, to include throw it. Throw it out. Yeah. Throw yeah. it out. We got some minutes. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this. Okay. Let's let's kind of see because it's a two part case, and you can tell it. Uh, you can tell it in either either which way, okay. But okay. I, I will tell it from the way that I discovered it. So it was when I was still in university. I think in 2010, uh, I was doing um, project. We had this uh, half year project thing, uh, and my my study mate and me were were sitting and talking, uh, and we were at some point talking about UFOs, probably because he saw some books in my my apartment. And he yells out like some, hey, my wife uh, had a UFO experience. And I was like, okay, I, I was interested, but I thought, okay, she saw something uh, in the distance on the beach or something. Uh, let, let me hear it. I mean, if it was in Denmark, I'm, I'm for sure interested. It then turns out that, that I mean, we, we met with her uh, a few days after, and she told me that it was during a summer uh, night in the mid '90s. That's the closest we've been able to kind of pinpoint it. '95 to '97. Um, she's uh, she's there with her boyfriend, and she's lying in bed. Uh, she pulled up the bed to the um, to one window where there's a balcony uh, because of the humidity and the heat. Um, at some point, she gets some kind of a notion to look out the window, and outside the window. She sees uh, very, very close to the window. Uh, what can you call it? Like a techno uh, baking roll, you know, for making bread. Uh, with that's the shape of it, more or less, uh, a dumbbell right. or something. An up inverted dumbbell, I guess. Like the middle is the biggest part, and then the ends are like. Um, so it looks a bit so like, like a, it's a rolling pin. It, it yeah. looks like a rolling pin, actually. Yeah, but but squared, right? And, like aluminium uh, surface. And it's just there in front of her hovering. And she, uh, at some point, well, not at some point, I mean, almost immediately, there is some kind of time distortion. uh, And she feels time is going very, very slowly for her. Uh, And this object suddenly starts to move. And she remembers that um, she follows it because the direction it had, it would have gone around the building up to uh, her kitchen window. So she struggles to go to that kitchen window uh, to, to catch it on the other side. But she, the time is somehow working against her. That's, that's her sense of it. Uh, and she actually never manages to, um, to catch it on the other side. 
and then suddenly the spell is is kind of broken and she, uh, her boyfriend uh, is still in bed and she's i guess pretty upset and she goes and wakes him and says i just had this experience and he instantly kind of like whoa what is this uh, can you describe it to me and um it turns out that that he had uh, an encounter many years earlier with the same shaped um, oh. craft, let's just say. So, uh, but this is something she tells me under the interview, and this is before I've met him. So I just okay, I have to talk with the boyfriend and this. But what what were the circumstances besides that? And uh, well, she told that that they had just actually just had sex uh, that morning or that or late night. And she was in a kind of, uh, I guess you could say, like altered state. Uh, she felt differently, super relaxed. Uh, it was her like uh, expression. And this is just before that, uh, just after that was the onset of, of the experience with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find out then that uh, she's a person who has had very many, like very lively. She has a very lively imagination. She tells me that. She has to stop herself sometimes uh, because if she thinks too much about, for example, flying, she will almost believe that she can fly. And uh, mm-hmm. so she's always had to put like really check on herself um, during her whole life. But she managed to get a career and uh, w- within design and, and, and this. But very many strange circumstances, remembering very early childhood, all these kind of experiencer uh, prone uh, details. Right. But the the, the, the boyfriend then... I, I'm I'm told where to get a hold of him. I contact him, and uh, we decide to meet out at where he had his experience. So the boyfriend, uh, this is in '87, '88. This is the closest we were able to get. It's a long street uh, in the west part of Copenhagen. They were roller skating. Uh, two of the friends, his two friends, were at the one end of the street, and he was at the very end, um, more towards the city center. Here, here he hears um, like a rumbling suddenly from above uh, and he looks up and he sees this same shaped craft uh, that she saw her the ex-girlfriend saw it come above him like following directly in between the buildings across the street uh, on top of them and while they ride by or while it flies by all the lights go out and go back on again all the ah. way down the street <laughs> And he is in, instantly in a kind of uh, time, captured by time in the same way that, that um, the ex-girlfriend described. He, he feels that he's, he's trying to signal to his friends down at the end, but he can't really do it. And he feels like he, he's always behind trying to, to, to do a movement. And this thing just continues down past over the friends and it disappears into a big pink uh, triangular cloud in the distance. Oh, wow. <laughs> And this was his, uh, and then the the time spell stopped for him also. And he talked with the friends, and they 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 heard the the sound, and they saw the lights go out, but they didn't notice the craft. And uh, this was completely changing for him. He became a vegetarian after this, and changed his politics and everything. And when he many years later, his girlfriend at the time had that experience in the apartment, he felt like it was some kind of a closure for him or something that that he also saw it and uh there's there's a lot of other details to this case but it's a really strange case that was not known i mean it makes you wonder how many of these experiences are never told to investigators because 
I mean, I was just there, let's say, randomly. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. there was a point of me being there, but but it was. There's it's really a interesting case from here with a lot of strange details that. And Martin, now that that's yeah, actually like again, it's like one of my all-time favorite Danish UFO cases, and uh, it would have been completely like a loss to um, uh, the Danish uh, UFO uh, community were it not for Thomas's blog there. That's yeah. see, that's amazing because first off, you have a shape that is not common. Yeah. Um, there's no mention of light, which is also interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you have two people connected that, that witness it. And you have the first witness, the boyfriend changing his entire life. I don't know how many cases I've mm. read. Yes. <laughs> right now I'm reading, you know, about anomalous lights. So, you know, I the the ones that appear without a light, I'm not completely disregarding them. It still goes into my brain file and and will come out at the oddest moments. Mm. But light seems to affect people such that they become vegetarian or they yeah. change religions or they become religious or they become a religious it's really interesting to me that you have these similarities and this isn't just ufo stuff this is people who just happen to see lights in the woods and are in close proximity to it mm. so that's really interesting and also the interesting detail that really got me was his friends saw the physical uh changes that the object brought to the environment and they heard the sound but they didn't see the sight no and they were like in completely normal time they they were like but the time was normal and they discussed this a lot but they they just saw the light thing and and remember the cloud uh, the pink cloud uh they remembered that also uh that's that's so interesting but another thing is that the area i looked looked at it after and and I got some uh, because I also wrote it for a Danish site, uh, and uh, I got some mails from people who worked in the area that said they had to. One guy said they had to close their whole business uh, back in the nineties because they always experienced these uh, blackouts, uh, power failures. Uh, so they lost a lot of their data, and they they simply mm-hmm. had to move address because. So it seems there's some kind of instability around this area that has to do with electricity, uh, which huh. is also interesting. And I mean, there's this is so there's so many elements in this that you almost feel like it's uh, something that was thrown out to see ah is, is some investigator gonna bite on this and make it into uh, a famous case. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the the thing that I'm thinking sometimes that it's almost too many of these details. Uh-huh. Uh, even just to top it off, uh, uh, let's call her Mayenne, the the my um, my study mate's wife that that had the second experience. Uh, she had a lot of artwork of her own where she had depicted owls. She was not obsessed, uh-huh. but very interested in it, and she didn't know why. Uh, and I, I also corresponded with Mike Cleland about this at, at the point at the time. Um, and she also remembers strange markings uh, that also mm. her that my study mate also remembered he had. So it's you can yeah. wonder how far could this have been taken if the right person had had gone into those 
areas. And and of course, you know, do we know anything about the their families? Is this a familial thing? Mm. What you know, what is happening? Yeah, and what's yeah. really funny is I'm going to be interviewing Mike probably next. Okay, cool. So yeah. <laughs> I mentioned the case; you probably will remember it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's another little synchronicity for everybody to chew on. There's yeah, there's a few of those. <laughs> Simon, you got anything else for us? Uh, no, not right now. Uh, not not right now. Um, that, again, that, that, that's another thing, uh, weird Danish UFO case, but I, I'd like to talk about. But uh, that would have been for if we'd like to do an, a second interv- interview about all this. Oh yeah. I'd I'd love to have you back. As always, uh, my guests are always welcome. Um, you guys were great. I am so happy you you uh, suggested coming on the show. I I love it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank no you. It's it's great to have. And thank you for inviting us on. For inviting us on. Yeah, spreading. We'd like to spread these stories a bit so they they're more well known and yeah. That would be great. That would be for great. Sure. Yeah, anytime uh, in the future, I'm I'm up for it and Simon too, yeah, so... Sure. Okay. Cool. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you And we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.